You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We have been, in a sense, uh, if you read through the, the letter of 1 John, kind of like the gospel, uh, John tends to have kind of a circular thought pattern kind of spins around the same ideas again and again, taking different angles on it. He has very simple words that become very profound and just you want to ponder it and ponder it and kind of sit there and let it simmer in. So we've looked at words like love, truth. Today we're getting to the word life. Now, when in the past I think I've shared about love, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this famous book called The Four Loves, in it, the, he goes through the four different Greek words for love, eros, um, storge, phileo, and agape. We find out that they mean different things that are used different ways. And our word for love, you know, in, in English can mean I love you and I love pizza. And I love, you know what I mean? It, we don't know what we mean by the word. But in Greek, it's more specific. Today, when we look at life, we'll find out that there are three different words for life in the Greek. Okay, four words for love, three words for life. Uh, but let's read this text, 1 John chapter, one, uh, chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has that testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. That last verse specifically, whoever has the son has life. So three different words for love or life. The first is bios or bios, where we get the word biology from. You've probably used that word before, biology or whatever. It's basically survival. Anything is, that is alive and moving, and in biology, you study what, those, uh, what determines life, and there's always the question, are viruses alive or not? Because, you know, they kind of need a ho- But, right, Otto, we're not quite sure. Bacteria, yes, they can reproduce, they, you know, et cetera. Uh, um, survival is important, Right. Some people have reduced human life to just biology now, okay? Then the second word is uh, suke, 
where we get the word psychology from. And the word suke um, is similar to the Hebrew word nefesh, which um, nefesh is about breathing and throat. Everything that breathes has a soul, or is a living, breathing soul, as like the book of Genesis talks about. And suke often in the New Testament can mean soul, can mean life. It's always talking about your emotional uh, life, your mind, your will, kind of the inner life of an individual. Psychology is where we get, you know, the word. It comes from the Greek as well. The third word, somebody here is named after it, right? It's Zoe. It's the uncreated eternal life. Is this why your parents called you Zoe? You don't know. Well, you can ask them because this is cool that you're named after this Greek word, which means the eternal life that God gives, the uniquely divine life that he possesses that he also shares, the generative life that he shares with the Son and the Spirit in perfect communal harmony. Isn't that amazing? Guess which of the three words is used in this text? Zoe. Zoe, that's the real life that we're talking about. It's not just a good, satisfying psychological life. It's not just survival, but it's the fullness of life, living in community with God and with others. And so at Thrive, we've often said where relationships are everything because that's really what life is all about. This is, it sounds kind of trendy or it was kind of a, uh, but it's really biblical, I mean, we're trying to be biblical. We're not just trying to be trendy. It's really biblical because that's what Zoe life is all about. So uh, today we're going to be looking at these three aspects from this text, okay? First of all, what kind of life most humans want, what they're looking for, what's called the good life, whatever that is, right? Secondly, what kind of life God wants to give you? And thirdly, how to get it, how to receive that life. Okay, um, so what kind of life do most humans want? When you think of it, when you hear somebody talking about they want a good life, what do they mean? Any, any ideas here? Big house, a boat. What, money? Okay, anything else, really? Come on, there's other. Happiness, whatever that, whatever makes you happy. Any, what? A hot wife. Well, you've got that. You've got a hot wife. Too bad we can't show, I, well, I do too. Woo, we could go down some really bad paths right now in rabbit holes. But we're not going to do that, right? Right. Y'all have hot wives, and y'all have hot husbands, okay? You know, but it's, um, anyways, okay. When most people talk about life, those are the things that they're looking for, but they're kind of a means to those. You, you know, the, the, the hot, quote, wife, the, the, the boat, the house, the... They're really means to what they want, okay? They're not the things themselves that give them. It's the happiness. It's the satisfaction. It's the feeling of contentment. And when people are pursuing those things to get contentment, what happens? They just want more. Exactly. In fact, I think it was John Rockefeller who was, at the time, one of the richest people in the world. And I do not have a slide for this. This is just off the cuff. So... Um, said, you know, how much money is enough? And he responded, just a little more. You know, it's always a little more. It's always a little more than what you have because when you pursue that kind of a life, 
you find it's kind of that <clears throat> treadmill, that gerbil wheel that you keep running around trying to get more and you never quite get it and you never quite get it and you're always looking for enough life. Um, you know, that's not always the way it's been. Not exactly. Uh, today, we're looking for happiness and whatever makes you happy. And so happiness is the goal, right? And whatever means to that goal, it can be anything, anything. Whatever you choose to make you happy is cool, right? And as long as that's for you, that's good. That's your truth. That's your life. That's the way you're going to live. It's not always been that way. Uh, a couple thousand years ago, there was a group called the Stoics, and the word Stoic actually meant porch. So they got a, 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 together in the, in the Greek porch, porticos, and kind of hung out at the Stoa and talked. And they had decided, the Stoics, this philosophical branch of people, decided in Greece that the real life is one that's aligned with the principles of the universe. They called it the logos the logic of the universe. And you needed to align your life with the flow of the universe. If you don't align your life with the flow of the universe or the grain of the universe, you're going to get splinters because you're going against the grain, and then you will not be happy or satisfied. So they looked outside of themselves, saw a standard to live by, and then when they lived by that, that was a full life, whether they were, quote, happy or not doing it. And so that's why you've heard the term stoic before, being somebody who's kind of staunch and just principled and gutsy and going to go through it and grit their teeth through it. Maybe it's that stoic idea of the British with a stiff upper lip. I don't know, Zoe, is that still a thing over there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're Welsh anyways. I don't know if that's British or not. I know. It. It's kind of a different country, but not, okay? <laughs> Someday it might be. <laughs> okay, we're way off again. Okay, so, so that's an example. The Stokes did that. Um, along comes someone, and you know, the Christian faith comes along, and then a man named St. Augustine, or Augustine of a Hippo, um, in about 400 AD or so, he said that to live life and to pursue life as we human beings are desiring beings, we need to live in accordance, not with an impersonal force or logic behind uh, the world, like the Stoics, but the personal God of Trinitarian community, where the Father gives himself for the sake of the Son. The Son responds and gives himself for the sake of the world, the Holy Spirit. The whole thing is a self-giving relationship of love and expenditure for the other. And when we live aligned with this truth and this God, then we have life and we participate in the very life of God. So it's outside of self. But today, happiness is the goal. And whatever makes you happy, you use as a means to that goal. If it's for you, going on lots of trips and vacations, great. If it's for you, um, using <laughs> medications to get a euphoria and a high, go for it. That's okay. That's what makes you happy. If it's toys and cars and a hot wife, fine. If it's, um, if it's the appreciation of music, if it's whatever it is, even if it's religion or God, it becomes God himself becomes an end 
to an, are, are means to another end. He is not the end in himself, which is totally different. And so it becomes a self-referential, I'm looking in myself, am I happy? And if I'm happy, everything's good. If I'm not happy, it's not good. Mirzlof Wolf um, is a Christian theologian that happens to be at Yale, which is really interesting. Um, he wrote a book called Public Faith, and he says in it today, many today would not care whether they live with or against the grain of reality. They want what they want, and the fact that they want it is sufficient justification for wanting it. Arguments about how their desires fit with a more encompassing account of reality, how they relate to, quote, human nature, for instance, are simply beside the point. And that's why we are in kind of some of the situations we are today, where people are not looking to anything outside of themselves, to themselves as who they are from outside of themselves, but how they feel on the inside. It's not their body, it's not their social identity from where they live or what they live. They're just, what it, what, who am I? What do I want? I want to be whatever I want to be on the inside. And you can start asking students now or adults or anyone in our society, who are you? And they don't know how to answer that. And the first place they look is, well, am I happy inside? And what makes me happy? And, what, and they can't figure it out anymore. We're in a quagmire. Because we haven't been able to acknowledge anything outside of ourselves as a reference point to what life is really about. It's all just inside. So if you're thinking about those three words again, bios, suke, and zoe, the kind of life most human beings want today in our society is a suke life, a psychologically satisfying life, whatever that happens to be. Whether uh, it fits into a greater good, who cares? Whether it's pursuing anything outside of self, doesn't matter. It's just whatever works for me and makes me happy. And in the pursuit of happiness today, I don't know if you've realized how high the rates of depression, anxiety, loneliness, isolation, it's just like epidemic proportions. But we're all trying to be happy. And it seems like nobody really is. Now, Jesus kind of said all this way back when, when he um, told his disciples, even, who were pursuing their own lives. In Matthew 16, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you know what word for life is used in this passage? Suke. You want to have a psychologically satisfying life and that's what you're trying to get in life, you're going to lose it. It's not going to work. Your goal is, is too low. You were created for something so much greater than just having a satisfying, comfortable, psychological life of fun and pleasure or, or fulfilling, quote, whatever desires you have. You are made for a purpose and meaning that goes well beyond what you've ever imagined because God, you are the apple of God's eye. He created you in his image, to bear his image, to show his image, to be like him in loving others and serving and giving and even in sacrificing for one another. Something so far beyond. So if you want to try to, quote, save your life and have a psychologically happy life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose that idea, 
and follow me, Jesus says, which feels like a death. It is a death to my selfish, self-centered, self-referential way. Then you really live. Pursue happiness as your goal. It'll elude your grasp. Seek God's kingdom first in Christ, and it'll be thrown in as a bonus. So here, here's a reality, and I think this is um, what uh, some people are starting to realize. Um, if I'm just looking for my own personal happiness in any of my relationships, in my work, and anything else, then I'm only going to be in this job as long as it feels good to me and it satisfies me. I'm only going to be in this relationship, even the most intimate of relationships, as long as it satisfies me, as long as it works for me, as long as it makes me feel good. And once it starts not feeling good or not working or not being satisfaction, it's time to move on and find something else. Do you understand what's going on there? Yeah. Everything becomes transactional. Every relationship is just what I can get out of it from you. And so am I really loving you? Not really. I'm just making deals all the time. Making a deal. Mearslav Wolf says again, he says, when the scope of love diminishes, love disappears. Benevolence and beneficence mutate into the pursuit of self-interest. When, when I'm only loving you to get something out of you, then it's really not love at all. It's narcissism. And sadly, I'm seeing an epidemic of that kind of understanding of love. And that leads to loneliness. It leads to isolation. It leads to no, you know, nobody making any commitment or faithfulness to me. Or, you know, everything just becomes up for grabs. That's why Jesus said this. It's not just because he's making life hard for you. He's saying this is the reality. You were made for much more than just trying to find your own little pleasure here and there or pursuing that as the goal of your life. So, so little. You were made not for psyche life only, but for Zoe life. So that's the life God wants to give, our second point. And we see that in a fascinating way at 1 John 5:12 where he says for whoever has the son has zoe life whoever does not have the son does not have zoe life god wants to give much more than just creating you as a biological being as a psychological being he wants to give you a communal spiritual relational loving relationship the very life that God himself possesses is the life he wants to give to you. Do you realize what I'm saying there? He's not give, making you a mechanical toy or a biological thing. He is giving his very life into you. And that's the choice that he makes. Jesus' whole purpose was to give life, his life. John 10 is known sometimes in the Gospel of John as the I am the good shepherd, I laid down my life. He, in that chapter, he kind of spells out why he came, right? Why did he come to earth? He says in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life, Zoe, 
and have it abundantly. You know, a lot of people think Jesus came to start a religion. Never. Okay? It's to start an organization. Not so much. To start a movement. Maybe a little. All those things might be thrown in. He came to give abundant life. He came to give you real life. Zoe life. And he says every religious leader, even in his day, all the Jewish religious leaders around him, all the political leaders around him, all of the leaders and models around him were thieves because they set up their whole way of doing things to kind of benefit themselves. They came to take, they came to kill and destroy, to suck the life out of people in one form or another, maybe to offer a couple things, but to gain. And Jesus is the one who came to give his life away. It might be shocking, but the Bible asserts that the only way to have a real life, the full life, a Zoe life, is to have a relationship, a personal, intimate relationship with God. And you may go like, well, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, but the question isn't so much of, do I know about that? It's am I living in such a way that my life looks like that? So um, Charles Taylor, he's a Canadian uh, philosopher. He's a really deep thinker. He wrote this tome about this thick called A Secular Age, talking about where we're at in our society these days. He's from Canada. He's also a Roman Catholic Christian. And one time he was hearing, he was at a lecture, I guess, where uh, Mother Teresa came, and she was asked the question of why in the world is she doing what she's doing in Calcutta to help the poor and the homeless and the, the nobodies that are dying on the streets and welcoming them, serving them, and giving to them. Why are you doing that? And Mother Teresa basically goes, it's not because it's rewarding. It's not because it's satisfying. It's not because I gain a lot from it necessarily. In fact, it's exhausting. It's difficult. And yet, I am called to do it because these individuals, she said, everyone is created in the image of God. And I want to treat them and value them as such. And Charles Taylor's thinking to himself, he's a you know, smart guy and all. He goes, I could have said that. <laughs> of course I believe. And then he thought again, but could I have meant it like she meant it? Do you understand the difference? Oh, I know God is love. I realize that, you know, without God in my life, you know, what would my life really be? But do I really mean it? Am I, am I, is my life, like, so convinced of that that I'm putting all, in a sense, the eggs in that basket? Or am I kind of holding back on, like, yeah, one foot is in, um, but I'm trying to find my pleasure and my enjoyment over here, and I'm going to dabble with this, and I'm going to do a little more of that. Oh, yeah, Jesus. I'm and so um, Christianity becomes kind of an add-on, you know, a, um, a, um, an improver, <laughs> a booster shot of a little extra spiritual love or life, but I could have a life without it. I think a lot of um, how Christianity is such a voluntary thing in the United States, good, you know, it's not compulsive, 
But a lot of us fall into this, it's just another thing that adds a little more to my life rather than Jesus is my life. And John is saying, that's what's going on here. And this is what his life is. Life is not um, a substance. It's not like um, energy. It's not a thing. When Jesus describes what life is, what eternal life is, he prayed this prayer right before he goes to his crucifixion. It's in John chapter 17. It's called the high priestly prayer because he's praying on behalf of his disciples and then on behalf of those who will believe after him. And he's praying in our place. He's not even praying for himself, really. He's praying for us in that prayer. And this is what he says in John 17, 3. He's talking to his father and saying, and this is eternal life, that they know you, Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He's saying eternal life is not just a long life that goes on forever. Eternal life is the quality of life that is lived in relationship of knowing God intimately, who loves you deeply, and is celebrating over you every day. It's living within that wonderful fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit right in the midst of it. And that's the life that God wants for all of us. Sure, my life is so often psychologically satisfying. I get a a reward of doing things. You give me the opportunity as a church to get paid for doing things I love to do anyways. Um, Thanks, you know, don't. (laughs) But, um, But not, you know, but... Life is so much more than just having fun doing, you know, things and talking to people and leading a Bible study and writing a sermon or all that stuff. Life is lived in relation, you know, that's what, so that's the life God has for all of us. It's like, I don't get a better life than you do that way. We get the full thing. We get the life of Jesus himself. He actually gives us his life. So how do we receive that? Here's the amazing and shocking thing. There, point three, how to receive that life. John states it this way in 1 John 5, 6. It's a weird passage. I'll tell you that, okay? At first, it's like, what? It, John says, this is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. And you're going like, uh, you know, what, what's he talking? Um, it appears, there's a debate about what does he mean by water and blood here, okay? Um, there is a debate, and there are a few re- references. You can look in John chapter 3 where he talks about being born of water and the Spirit. You can look at the water at his baptism. You can, I, I, some people understand the water for birth, you know, like that he was born into this world. Um, what's with all of this, right? It, it appears that John, um, he has been indirectly Um, differentiating, separating out these false teachers that came into um, the churches that he was writing this letter to. And they kind of believe that Jesus came by, quote, water only, is what it appears, which means he came into this world, he was baptized and endowed with the Holy Spirit and became this wonderful divine teacher 
to show you how to live and the truth behind all things. And that's where they stopped at that. And John says, just knowing about Jesus, thinking he's a good guy, great teacher, a divine revealer of truth, modeling your way, you know, how you can live, you know, ain't enough. Isn't the way he came, it's not the way you really receive life. He has to come by water and blood. Both. You don't add a concept or two. You don't gain this eternal life by agreeing to a teaching or a concept. It doesn't come through a lesson plan. Sorry to all you teachers. But this kind of life does not come through just, oh, I did this lesson, now I've got it. Okay? God's life comes to us through God becoming one of us. And then not just becoming one of us, but giving up his life for us. So that phrase, water and blood, comes up before in the Gospel of John in chapter 19. John writes this, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out, what? Blood and water. And then this is what John says. He who saw it, me, I saw this, is bearing witness. That's true. That's what God is all about. And he knows that he's telling you the truth. You might believe this is the one who does it for you. He pours out his water and blood, which means he dies for you. He gives up his very life. And he says, here's, take my life. It's yours. And he welcomes you into that life. And Jesus doesn't die on the cross so that you don't have to. I know that sounds kind of, I, I grew up kind of thinking, oh, so Jesus dies on the cross. He goes through all that punishment so I can have a nice little wonderful middle class life and have no pain or problems and I don't have to die. I can just live whatever way I want, but I know this fact. That's, that is not, that's not the gospel. Jesus Christ dies on the cross and we die with him. And the whole way the world has been set up, seeking its own pleasure, its own power, its own glory, seeking our own self-referential love, that we're really just loving ourselves, and that's put to death there too. All of it dies there, and a whole new way of life comes about because he gives us his very life that we are welcomed in freely and completely. Isn't that amazing? And that's why you and I we do, like Jesus says, you're going to, you try to save your life, you lose it, but you lose your life. You give up that, quote, psychologically satisfying life that you've been pursuing and never finding, that you've tried and tried, you've tried it all, and it never is satisfying. You give up your pursuit and let me give you my life, you're going to gain it all. But it is a death. It feels like a cross. That's why I believe Paul, when he talks about it, says it this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life, Zoe, I live in the, by faith in the Son of God, who has loved me and gave himself for me. It's a great exchange. And you come to realize this not by like adding this idea into everything you're already doing, but by coming to realization, ugh, I've been doing it all wrong. I've been trying it all myself, 
I'm still trying to control my life. I'm trying to save my life. I'm trying to have a good life. I'm trying to do this, trying to do that. I give up. Because <laughs> all of that was just about me. And I put on the games of loving others and doing all this stuff and wheeling and dealing. Of all people, I've just been amazed at um, C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He wrote the book Mere Christianity. He wrote these books, Chronicles of Narnia, these wonderful children's books. He also uh, wrote some poetry. And one of my favorite poems of his, I heard when I was in high school, it was the lyrics to a song by a Christian artist at the time called Phil Keggy. And he just took the words of the poem and just wrote music to it. And it's just like, wow. And so this is how he describes how he has received this very life of Jesus. He says, all this flashy rhetoric about loving you, I've never had a selfless thought since I was born. What a confession that is, right? I am mercenary and self-seeking through and through. I want God, you all, friends, merely to serve my term. I'm just using you as a means to my own end of happiness. Peace, reassurance, pleasure, those are the goals I seek. I cannot crawl one inch outside my proper skin. I talk of love. A scholar's parrot may talk Greek. It's kind of like what Charles Taylor said, you know? She said it, and she meant it. I say those words. And they're like a parrot just paraphrasing or saying something. But self-imprisoned always end where I begin. Only that now you have taught me about how late my lack. I see the chasm. I see the difference between you and me. And where you see that most clearly is at the cross. Where here he is dying for you and here you are wanting him dead. (laughs) Get him out of here. And he's doing it for you. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And everything you are was making my heart into a bridge by which I might get back from exile and grow man. And now that bridge is breaking. And for this, I bless you as the ruin falls. The pains you give me are more precious than all other gains. Yes, by water and blood, by the cross, the death of Jesus gives you life. And this is what love is. It's why Carl Gaelic last week, one of the best sermons I've heard in a very long time, by the way. And if you um, didn't hear it, listen to it online, man. Wow. He said, you know, this whole series, we talk about understanding the love. We can't understand God's love. What we can do maybe is wonder at it, amaze at it, marvel at it, cherish it, and receive a little bit of it time and again, and just to let it blow our minds away and our lives, and let that turn our hearts into a bridge by which we start to love one another and live in that true life that God has for us, that Zoe life. And whether Zoe realized it or not, great name, right? That's the kind of life God wants for us to have. Zoe life, his very life, the life of his son, nothing less. Let's pray. Lord God, um, wow, that you would give us what you could keep for yourself, your very life, that you would give it to us freely. (laughs) I don't even, there are no words to describe. We cannot 
fathom the depth and height and breadth and width of the love that you have shown us in your son, Jesus Christ. That is not just a, our paltry seeking after our own life and our own pleasures and our own goals and our own purposes. And, and Lord, we lay that aside. It's just a pile of rubbish. It's just another form of self-seeking and forgive us for that and renew us, Lord, by the love that you've shown us through the blood and water of Jesus as he poured out himself, gave everything up to take our place to be our Savior. We thank you, Lord, that the power of the resurrection, that that is the new life that we live into and the life that we can share with others, Lord, and that we can start showing this Zoe life and how we live together how we serve the least of these, like a Mother Teresa, how we give of ourselves sacrificially beyond what would ever be expected, that our lives and our, our, our relationship is near, no longer just transactional, but transformational because of your spirit and your presence and the very life of your son living through us. Lord God, in just a moment, we're going to give of ourselves by offering uh, to you some of the first fruits of your bounty in our lives. It's just a thank offering, Lord. It's not at all nearly what you've given us, but we want to thank you and ask that you would bless it for the kingdom and for uh, the world. We lift up to you now the, the beginning of the school year and the teachers in our midst and the students, that you would bless them as the days come, as they enter the classroom. Keep them safe, O oh Lord, during this time in our community. Bless them. Give them wisdom how best to, um, to love others and serve others and, and protect one another, Lord God. And the same goes for Florida Gulf Coast University in just a few more days, Lord, as we enter into a time that it would be a time as well of not just growth intellectually, not just psychologically satisfying life, but where your Zoe life can get into the hearts and lives of many, many students, faculty, staff there, and they can live the abundant life you've always wanted them to live because you've laid down your life for them. And for our community, the same thing, Lord God. We're not asking for anything different. Our prayers are too small, not too big, Lord God. We do not pray as you would have us pray beyond all our expectations and imaginations for your spirit and your will to be done in this world. And we need it now more than ever. We see so many ways that we need it. For those who need your healing touch in our congregation and in our families and our neighbors and uh, beyond, Lord. For those who need your, uh, your presence in the midst of their loneliness and struggles. For those of you uh, that need your peace in the midst of their anxieties, Lord. Um, you know our worries and we cast them on you. You know our concerns and we lay them at your feet. Lord, we thank you that in a moment we are going to receive again your gift of yourself. How you give yourself to us your very life as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as you intended it, as you gave it to us. We pray, Lord, that you work in us, that it would be our time to open our hearts and lives to you. So bless, Lord, the rest of this day and this week um, that we live into the life that you have us aligned with the love that you've given to this world through the truth of your son, Jesus. All this we pray in his name. Amen.